Good morning. It's been a while since we have uh, dived into the book of Revelation back to November 6th. This will be the first time this year. We're coming up on five years since this study began. That'll be approximately next Sunday. Five years. Five year study. I had no idea that when I was asked to consider doing it would be the case. But it's been good to compare Scripture with Scripture, to touch on every single book in the Bible at least once, most of them twice, and to see what God would have to have us learn in days that are nearing the fulfillment of much we have been talking about. We're in chapter 16, and if you recall, last time we got through the fifth vile judgment. For the sake of review, God during the period of tribulation pours out His judgment upon the world. The church has been raptured out. That is a biblical doctrine. You know, if Jesus Christ were to leave His church, the virgin bride here, during this time of wrath, He'd be guilty of domestic abuse. He'd be guilty of domestic abuse against His virgin bride. And he's not like that. We're not appointed to wrath. The church is taken out and then begins the time of Jacob's trouble, the great, the tribulation, the last half of which is the great tribulation according to Jesus Christ. And it's during this time that God pours out His judgment upon the world. And in and through that judgment brings Israel to its utter end, to such a place that it finally wakes up as a nation and recognizes its great mistake, its great foolishness, its great sin, having rejected its Messiah. Then they will call upon Him, and He will come and rescue them. We're coming up on that moment, that great battle of Armageddon. But when God pours out His judgments upon the world, it takes the form of six seals, or seven sealed judgments, as the Lamb opens that scroll, the title deed of the earth, to claim what is His, what He redeemed and purchased back at the cross. And as He removes the seals, judgments fall. The seventh seal, the culminating seal judgment, is the seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet judgment is the seven vile judgments. These vile judgments take place quickly, rapidly, and toward the end of the tribulation. And they are the culmination of that last seal. We went through the first five vile judgments. Uh, and that's where things ended last time. Verse 11 of chapter 16. And we're going to continue today. Verses 12 and forward with the sixth vile judgment. But before I do so, I want to review just a little bit from the last few messages. If you recall, when God poured out His plagues upon Egypt, there's a lot of commonality, similarities between these vile judgments which affect the whole world and the plague judgments which fell upon the Egyptian empire in the days of the Exodus. And God told Moses that He was pouring out these plagues not just to deliver His people, not just to punish Pharaoh, not just to punish the people of Egypt, but also to punish their gods. These plagues were a direct attacks against the so-called gods of Egypt that they worshipped. I believe these vile judgments, in a way, are the same thing. 
They're a direct attack. They're a mockery, an insult of the man-made gods that we worship in this 21st century. That men will worship at the end of days. When that first vial is poured out, it becomes a boil that breaks out on those who have the mark of the beast. This is God's attack against the man-made God of human technology. All of man-made technology shrunken into a little chip that's embedded in the right hand of the forehead that can tell you everything about a person that can buy and sell. It doesn't uh, work too well with the human body and very quickly those who have that chip begin to break down, covered in boils and become sick. God attack knowledge be inferior to what He creates. The second vial, that the entire sea, all of the ocean is turned to blood. Not just to blood, not just to bright red blood, but the blood of a dead man. And every living soul in the sea dies, it says. This is God's attack against the God of human mobility. We think we can just move around and go wherever we want to go. And the sea is a big part of that. Transporting goods and crates, ships and freighters going back and forth all over the world. When this vial is poured out, that comes to an end. God is God of our mobility. The rivers turn to blood with the third vial. The angels cry out that they have shed blood. God gives them blood to drink. All praise to His name. This is God showing Himself superior to the man-made God of human choice. We choose to do what we want to do. It's my body. I'll do whatever I want to do. I believe it was 300,000 babies that Planned Parenthood slaughtered last year alone in America. My friends, America will never be great again. I don't care who's in the White House when this stuff is going on. The day's coming when this human choice that results in the slaughter of the unborn that results in the slaughter of Christians, that results in the slaughter of the saints and prophets, will be turned on its head and God will show Himself superior. He'll give them blood to drink. The fourth vial. The uh, sun scorches with heat. You know, it's funny, the climate change cultists, those that yammer on about global warming and climate change and these so-called junk scientists, they claim that the sun has absolutely nothing to do with climate change. That it's man-made. What pride, what arrogance that drives this agenda. And it's never been about the earth. It's not about the earth. We ought to be custodians. I'm not an environmentalist. I would be a conservationist. We ought to conserve what God has made in a way that continues to allow it to give testimony of his of him being the creator but this global warming climate change it's never been about the earth it's been about control it's rooted in man-made arrogance and pride the idea that man controls the destiny of this planet and not the creator of the planet when the sun scorches men with heat it proves very quickly that the sun has most the sun has a great deal to do with what happens with the climate here on not man. And God turns the God of human pride and arrogance on its head. Then we have the fifth vile darkness. Man claims he 
descended from an ape, descended from a beast. God gives him a beast to rule over him. And technologically advanced man, superior evolved man, suddenly devolves into polywogs where they think they came from chewing on their tongues in darkness. That fifth vile God attacks the God of human evolution and sends it right back to where it thinks it came from. And then we get to the sixth vial. A great gathering. A gathering that's already been foreshadowed in chapter 15 with the wine press, the vintage. A gathering that's already been prepared supernaturally back in chapter 9 with the sixth trumpet judgment. A gathering that takes human freedom, the God of man-made freedom, and turns it on its head. When man thinks he's free to direct his armies, when man thinks he's free to choose to go to war, when man thinks he's free to take a land that God said belonged to someone else, he's going to learn real quickly that it's God who brings him to that final battle, not he himself. So when God pours out these judgments, he attacks what we have set up as God's and turns it on his head, turns these things on their heads. God is not just the God of the universe. He's not just the creator. He's the God of all gods. And no one stands in his way. There's not a cosmic duality, good versus evil, God versus Satan. The governor of the universe is above all of that. And at the end of the day, Satan is his minister that can only do what God allows him to do. Antichrist is his instrument to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is that one day the earth itself will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that day will come despite what man tries to do to stop it. So here we are at the sixth vile judgment. Let me find my, my place here. Revelation 16, 12 through 16. Let's just read this morning. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see their shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Here we have a great gathering. This gathering was already foreshadowed in chapter 14. Remember in that parenthesis, there's a contrast, two gatherings. The harvest, the Son of Man reaps the harvest of the earth. The wheat harvest gathers them into His barn. That gathering is the rapture prior to the tribulation. And then the vintage is reaped and cast into the winepress of the, of the great God. 
and trodden, the blood coming even to the horse's bridles. That winepress, that gathering to destruction, it has already been declared and foreshadowed in chapter 14. Its fact is pronounced. Here we have its means. Here is how these grapes are gathered and cast into the winepress. That great vintage. It's kind of like the way things work commonly in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1, we have the fact of God's creation, what He did. Chapter 2, it goes back in detail and explains the means whereby man was created. If you go to the book of Daniel, we have the fact of the captivities of Daniel and the three Hebrew children and their period of training in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Those three years when they were brought up and then brought before the king. And then you have chapter 2, which goes into that period and focuses in upon how Daniel himself, uh, the means whereby he was lifted up before Nebuchadnezzar, that interpretation of the dream. So here we have the means by which what has already been declared is going to come to pass. In a way, this sixth seal or this sixth vile judgment is a great divine LOL. It's a divine laugh out loud from God the Father. The Bible says God laughs at the heathen think they can actually gather themselves together and keep God's Messiah from sitting on His throne. That's Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm. The kings of the earth are gathered together to overthrow Christ and to keep Him from sitting on that throne. And the Bible says, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. And then it ends with a sobering warning. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. You know, these religions out here that boast about worshiping God, but God doesn't have a Son, unless you kiss the Son of God, there's no hope for you. And you will perish by the one you claim doesn't even exist. Amazing. The spirit of Antichrist denies the Son of God. Islam is the spirit of Antichrist. Rabbinic Judaism is the spirit of Antichrist. It denies the Son of God, that God came in the flesh. But nothing can keep the Son of God from sitting on His throne. Even those gathered together against Him. This is a giant divine LOL upon the God of human freedom and human democracy that thinks it can do what it wants to do and go where it wants to go when it wants to do. Human pride. You know, there was... When I think about democracy and I think about how that word is thrown around and it's almost lifted up as a God on the planet here today. Democracy. Democracy. It's about democracy. Free and democratic elections. You know, in Iraq, they used to claim to have free and democratic elections. And Saddam Hussein would get like 97% of the vote. A tyrant would get like 97% of the vote. And they would talk about, see, we have democratic elections. North Korea claims to have democratic elections. It's complete fraud. Sadly, that's the way we're moving here in this country. We claim all these democratic elections. I mean, come on. What happened in November of 2016 was a divine miracle where God stepped in, I believe, because people were praying. What happened in Alabama a month or so ago, that wasn't a democratic election. It's a fraud. 
It's a fraud. When I think about democracy and I think about the freedoms we have here in this country, I, I recall something that, I think it was John Adams, the second president of the United States, taught, said when he talked about our Constitution. He said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Not a moral and religious people in America. Our Constitution's inadequate. We can appeal to it. We can be thankful to it because it still affords some protections. But as far as the government is concerned, it's not worth the paper it's written on. We are not a moral or religious people. Our Constitution is inadequate. Now, I praise God for our president in the White House. I praise God for the mercy He's had on this country and that we don't have to look at her on the television every day. It'd be nice if... Somebody uh, uh, would, would send a I'm with her t-shirt to the cellmate that's going to be living with her in a prison cell. I'm, I'm hoping. Don't keep your, your, your fingers crossed. But I praise God that she's not... We don't have to look at her every day. I praise God for some good things that have happened in the last year. That our president's not an enemy of the church or an enemy of Israel. But if you think that having him in the White House and a few good things this last year makes us a moral and religious people, you're blind. That same John Adams who said that wrote in his journal when he was president that he would date, he talked about he would, every night he would kneel at his bedside and he would confess to God his inadequacy to lead this young country and that he would confess his sins, his foibles and his weaknesses to God in humility and ask God to help him. That was a daily thing for him. Now, again, praise God for our president. I pray for him. But he's not John Adams. He's a prideful man. It saddened me to see these tweets come out yesterday. He's got to defend himself and claim to be very smart and not mentally unstable. Comparing himself to how Reagan was attacked. Reagan never had to defend himself and go out there and tell everybody how smart he was. There's a lot of pride in those tweets yesterday. A lot of pride. We need to be careful. We don't have a man like John Adams. Trump's not John Adams. He needs our prayers. Maybe God will save him. He's got pride like Nebuchadnezzar though. God brought Nebuchadnezzar down on his face. We need to remember something. The Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture. And the rapture chronologically happens before the destruction that comes in chapter 5. And it talks about the pronoun changes. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air with our Lord. But when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. My friends, the tribulation comes out of peace and safety. It doesn't come out of anarchy. It's sudden destruction out of a time of peace and safety when everybody thinks everything's okay. It doesn't come out of anarchy and the world falling apart and Islam burning everything down. It comes out of peace and safety. 
And Christians are told in that context to watch and be sober. We may see some really good things happen because it's putting together a peace and safety that's going to be torn down. We need to just watch and be sober. We don't need to be blindly allegiant to political, allegiant to political leaders who do a few good things. We should pray for our president like the Bible commands, but don't put our trust in him. Don't put our trust in him. All the good things that may or may not happen are going to be torn down. Make America great again. The modern state of Israel. All these things being set up are going to come crashing down. We can rejoice when we see things happen in the modern state of Israel. When we see the capital declared. When we see uh, 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 progress and blessing. But you realize these things are happening so that they can be torn down and taken away suddenly. And bring Israel to a place that it has nothing left but to call on Jesus. They've got no other hope. Everything their trust is in now is going to be taken away. Everything America's trust is in now is going to be taken away. We just need to be mindful. Watch and be sober. When I think of our president, I don't mean to get off topic, but I think of a king in Israel's history, King Asa. King Asa was the third king of the southern kingdom after it split following the days of Solomon. He was the grandson of Rehoboam, the son of Abijam. And the southern kingdom had deteriorated in ways much like we've seen here in America. And when Asa came along, he had a heart tender toward the things of God. He, was a, he had a heart tender toward the priesthood, toward the temple. It talks about how he took the Sodomites out of the land. He purged the land of the Sodomites. It was a good thing. What God calls righteous. God said it, not me. I'm not going to make an apology for that. He even removed his mother, kicked her out of the palace because she was worshiping an idol. There was a time when Asa and the army of Judah were threatened by an army out of North Africa of over a million people. And they were but small. And he called the nation to repentance and to trust upon the Lord, and it did, and God wrought a great victory. And then there was peace. There was peace until I think maybe the 35th year Great peace, prosperity, good things happening as if Israel was going back to where it should be. But then there were rumblings in different places. And then Asa thought he needed to make an alliance with the king of Syria and he took things that had been dedicated to the house of the Lord and gave them to the king of Syria to secure an alliance and never once asked the Lord. The Lord had delivered him from an army of a million people. But that was forgotten. And he began to put his trust in man-made kings. As a result, God sent the prophet to rebuke this. To call his hand upon it. What did Asa do? Asa became wroth. How dare you question me? After all that I've done 
in turning this land back to where it should be. How dare you question me? And he threw God's prophet in prison and it says he turned his oppression. He began to oppress some of the people because his pride was hurt. Asa reigned for 41 years. And in his last years, he was diseased in his feet and the prideful man couldn't even walk around the palace. How quickly things changed. That can happen here. Don't put your trust in a man. A man that your friend one day can be so full of pride that he turns upon the people he claims he was elected to protect. Don't be foolish. Nothing new under the sun. We need to watch and be sober. We need to pray. We need to pray. As far as the sixth vial, I want to focus on one phrase today. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. We're going to talk about the great river Euphrates today. There's a lot encompassed in that simple phrase. Historically, biblically, some things I find very interesting. He's a great teacher. I recently, uh, when we took Eric and Mindy to the airport in Washington, D.C., I took a couple days with Bethany and we visited some Civil War battlefields and we saw a lot of monuments. Monuments to north and south. Really beautiful monument. One of the most beautiful I've seen to North Carolina soldiers. It wasn't on any major battlefield. It was on a ridge uh, at uh, Fox's Gap crossing South Mountain in, I think we were still in Maryland. And it was in a backwoods place. You park in a little parking lot. You walk through the woods, through a trail, and there's a beautiful monument of a soldier, a wounded soldier grasping a, a battle flag uh, to America, uh, North Carolina troops that held that gap prior to Antietam. So beautiful monuments. And in these monuments, as you read and study, you, you learn things. You see divine providences. You see where men made mistakes, where men made foolish choices. Where some were victorious, some were defeated. You learn a lot of things. We live in a day and time where we just want to tear down monuments. We don't even want to take the time to understand the choices men face. We want to erase history. We want to rewrite it. And when we do those things, we remove the lessons that history can teach us. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. Israel repeated the same mistakes over and over and over again because they never learned from their history. We're doing the exact same thing. The only thing that men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. So when we have an opportunity to look at history in our study of the Scriptures, it's a beneficial thing to do. The great river Euphrates... A geographic obstacle that God clears. A great geographic barrier between the east of Asia and the west of Asia. Between the east and between the land of Palestine. Here we see God clearing that obstacle and opening a path of invasion. The Euphrates is actually pretty prominent in the Scriptures. It was one of the four rivers whose original headwaters flowed out from the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that out of the Garden of Eden went a water, went a stream, went a river that later parted into four rivers. 
There was the Gihon and the Pison. We don't know where those rivers are. They don't exist anymore. One was the Hidekel or the Tigris. And then the fourth was the Euphrates. Now, when the flood happened, the geography of the, of the world was affected. It was changed. The continents were broken apart. So we, don't, we can't pinpoint where the Garden of Eden was. I mean, the headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates are only about 30 kilometers apart. And they both come out of the mountains of Ararat where Noah's Ark landed. But we don't know where the Garden of Eden is or was. We can't even say where it is or was. But the Euphrates River and the Tigris both endured after the flood. But it was one of the original uh, four heads that parted out of the Garden of Eden. It's also a place of great evil. It's a doorway to an evil place. We talked about this a long time ago with the sixth trumpet judgment. If you go back to chapter 9, it says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. It's been about three years ago that I preached this message. The sixth trumpet judgment which I called infernal destruction. These aren't Chinese tanks being described here. This is an army of fallen angels that runs rampant across the earth and slays a third of men. Earlier in the sealed judgments, a fourth of the planet's destroyed population-wise. So after this sixth trumpet judgment, you have half the world's population has been slaughtered. Overpopulation is not going to be a problem in the Millennial Kingdom. Crowded national parks where you can't park and see anything. Wilderness areas where you can't get, where you're full of hikers, you can't get away and be quiet. That's not going to be a problem in the Millennial Kingdom. Drastic population reduction. But this, the fifth trumpet judgment was hell on earth. Demons unleashed on the planet. This is fallen angels unleashed on the planet. We talked about in Second Peter and Jude how it talks about angels that left their first estate and committed a great evil being bound in chains until the day of judgment where they have a purpose. You know, God's fulfillment's precise. It's prepared for not just a month and a year, but a day and an hour and a minute. And we talked about the word for hell in Second Peter. Remember correctly, that, time, that message was preached at Gigi's house when half the church was gone. So unless you went back and listened to it, you may not remember. It was a small group that day. But the word used for hell there is not Gehenna, not Hades or Hades, it's Tartarus. Tartarus is a compartment in hell where these fallen angels who left their first habitation, Genesis 6, they came down and cohabitated with women a wicked thing, and polluted the human race. And as a result, there were giants in the earth. It was a wicked thing. They were enchained and imprisoned, and one day they're going to be released. And we talked about how that angel through the Euphrates opens that door, and how the Euphrates is a doorway to Tartarus, and it's a doorway to the unleashing 
of these fallen angels that sinned in the days of Noah upon the planet. And they lead an army of 200 million, uh, uh, a supernatural army. If you've ever seen those Lord of the Rings movies, there's a scene in there where there's an army of death that just sweeps over a battle plane. That's the image I get. And it sweeps over possibly Eastern Asia and prepares the way of a man-made army that will follow it. Possibly many of these who are slaughtered are armies that field millions of men that would stand in its way. But you see supernatural armies used by God throughout Scripture, and a lot of times a supernatural army or supernatural beings stand behind human governments and human armies and work ahead of them. This supernatural army we see with the sixth trumpet judgment that slaughters a fourth of mankind that's remaining in that day is doing work ahead of the man-made armies that come from the east. So the Euphrates is essential not just to the sixth trumpet but the sixth vile judgment. And it's apparently a doorway of some sort, a place of great evil. Evil that's restrained by God for a specific purpose. For a month, a day, a minute. Prepared for a specific purpose. It's a place of spiritual evil. There are places in this world, my friends, that are dark. Where evil gravitates. There are wicked places in this world. It's interesting to do a study. Uh, you know, names mean something. There's a lot of places, geographically speaking, that have names. Names always refer to something. They're there for a reason. They're not just happenstance. If a mountain has a person's name, then it's related to a person named that somehow. But you've got a lot of places out there that have, just for instance, the name devil in them. Devil's backbone. Devil's courthouse. Devil's post pot. All over the place. And it's interesting if you look at, there's a reason those names are there. And you look back over history and see some of the strange things that have happened in those places. People going missing, people being murdered. There are places where evil gravitates. It's a fact. There is a spiritual realm. Not everything can be seen with the eyes. It's a fact. There are cities where evil gravitates. The Euphrates is a place of evil. It's a great place of evil. It's a place of conflict even today. I'll talk about that in a moment. It is the largest river in Western Asia. And with the Tigris, it literally formed what they called in ancient times the Fertile Crescent. It's where man says civilization began. Uh, the Fertile Crescent is that land between the Tigris in the north and Euphrates in the south, and it kind of makes an arc, goes up toward the headwaters, and then the Crescent itself turns south and comes down through the land of Palestine over into Egypt. It was a very fertile area in the ancient world where some of the first great cities rose up, where, where the, the land was very fertile. And it, you know, the Crescent in the north and the south is surrounded by desert and barren mountains. But this area between these rivers circling on around down through the land of Palestine and Egypt was a very fertile area. Very poor, important in human history. And the Euphrates formed the southern arc of that crescent. 
You've, you've probably heard the term Mesopotamia. You know, Mesopotamia, that ancient area, that cradle of civilization. Abraham came out of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers. The land between the Tigris and the Euphrates. The source of the Euphrates rivers is actually the mountains of Ararat in eastern Turkey. On Mount Ararat, there's a permanent ice cap. And the snows in that ice cap are the source of this river. It flows through eastern Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, and it actually joins the Tigris River at a place called Shat al-Arab. It's about 120 miles from the Persian Gulf. And that 120-mile section where the Tigris comes in to the Euphrates and it flows together, the border of Iraq and Iran for 120 miles. In fact, it was one of the main reasons why there was a war between the Iraqis and the Iranians in the 1980s was dispute over this tract of land. Who had water rights, where the border actually was, um, navigation rights, so forth and so on. It empties into the Persian Gulf. At Shat al-Shabaab, where the uh, rivers come together, it's actually the location of the largest date palm forest in the world. Kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, very fertile area. It's a very disputed area. A source of conflict, particularly where the rivers come together. About 30 kilometers, 18 miles, separates the headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates, and then they flow in their own paths and they come back together and into the Persian Gulf. There are multiple dam and canal projects on the Euphrates today, and these have been a source of conflict and have resulted in the displacement of entire villages of people in recent years. In Turkey in the 1970s, there was the Southeast Anatolia project that was begun to try to harness the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates for irrigation and hydroelectric power. And as a result, more than 200,000 people had to be resettled. The Kurdish people were treated very badly where this project was concerned. The Ataturk Dam was constructed in Turkey. It made the third largest lake. It resulted in the third largest lake being formed from the Euphrates waters. And the water that is in that reservoir today is enough to hold the entire annual discharge of the Euphrates River. That dam's building resulted in the displacement of 55,000 people. And it's greatly affected all the villages and towns downstream in Syria and Iraq. Make no mistake, the Arab world is not united. It's united in one matter. It's hatred of Israel. The Arab world is only united in one thing. It's hatred of Israel and the Jew. But in every other thing, it's not united. Arabs hate each other. And it's stuff like this that results in that. Stealing water, building canals, displacing people. You know, all of this kind of stuff going on. The Syrians, the Iraqis, the, the Turks, the Kurds, they all hate each other. The Shias and the Sunnis, they hate each other. Muslims kill as many Muslims as they kill anybody else. Far more so. They've been fighting with each other since day one. 
The only thing that unites them is their hatred for Israel. And that's what's going to unite all these armies that come. When you get into Iraq, there's an intricate network of canals that have been dug to connect the Tigris and the Euphrates. And as I mentioned, the last 200 kilometers was the source of a war that lasted eight years in the 1980s. We aligned, the U.S. aligned itself with Iraq and Russia and the others were aligned supporting Iran and they were fighting and killing each other for eight years, couldn't stand each other. And a lot of it was over a stretch of land involving the Euphrates River and a national border. Lake Assad was created in Syria from uh, the damming up of the Euphrates. It displaced 4,000 families. Place of great conflict, a place of anarchy, a place of suffering, a place of great evil. All these dams and canals have resulted in recent years in increased evaporation and as a result the salt content in the soil has increased and what was once a very fertile place is not as fertile anymore. Decreased water quality. The Mesopotamian marshes and the water fish habitats have been terribly affected. A whole slew of archaeological sites have been flooded and been lost forever. Lost forever. I wouldn't drink from the Euphrates River. I wouldn't drink from it. Really sad what's happened to this cradle of civilization. A source of conflict, a source of problem. Historically, the river is very significant. It's significant in terms of Gentile kingdoms that have ruled the world. And it's significant in terms of their actions regarding the people of Israel. Do you remember when we talked about the dragon in chapter 12 that had seven heads? And then the beast in chapter 13 that comes out of the, the sea. Seven heads. We talked about those seven heads relating to Daniel's four Gentile kingdoms. When Daniel described the four great Gentile kingdoms that would rise from his time until the end of time, two great Gentile kingdoms that were used to persecute Israel had already passed into oblivion. So, there's six. And then you have a revived Roman Empire, which is the kingdom of the beast. Out of that, is the seventh we see in Daniel. So we talked about those seven heads representing Gentile kingdoms that conquered the world per se and were instruments of persecution against Israel. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist. And when we think about these seven heads, we can look back and see in that each of these kingdoms, the Euphrates River, is very significant. Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria, carried the northern tribes captive in 722 B.C. and destroyed the capital of Samaria. Today, uh, where Samaria was located is just a hill in the West Bank. It's just rocky, rocky hill with weeds and grass. There's nothing there. 
completely obliterated. The kingdom of Assyria originated in the plain of Shinar, which is that plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates, that fertile crescent. It was Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord who founded the kingdom. He was instrumental in the Tower of Babel. The Euphrates was the southern arc of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian armies crossed it to invade Israel, carried the northern tribes captive, brought them back across the Euphrates and scattered them. During the times of Assyria, the old Assyria is when Abraham came out of this area. He came from the other side of the flood. That word flood there in Joshua refers to the Israeli, I mean the Euphrates. He came from the other side of the flood and God brought him down into the promised land. Great cities, the great cities of Assyria were mainly situated on the Tigris River, but the capital of Nineveh in 612 BC was overrun and destroyed by the Babylonians. It was on the Tigris. The Assyrians then moved their capital to Haran. Remember, Haran is where Abraham's brother died. They moved their capital to Haran, but in 609 BC it was captured. And so the third great capital of Assyria was at a place called Carchemish. Carchemish was actually on the west bank of the Euphrates River. And there was a great battle there, 605 B.C., that had a profound impact on the history of Israel. Egypt marched to help the Assyrians in 609 from losing their capital at Haran, but they were delayed the Egyptian army was marching through Israel to help the king of Assyria, but it was delayed. Does anybody know why the Pharaoh was delayed and didn't get to the battle in time? Anybody know why? It's in the Bible. His name was Pharaoh Necho. Because Josiah went out to fight him. And the Pharaoh's like, what? I don't have any beef with you. What's your problem? I, you know, Leave me alone. I don't have any problem with you. Go home. Sit down and shut up. Josiah wouldn't listen. As a result, he was killed, a very young man, a righteous king, at Megiddo, at the location of Tel Megiddo, or Armageddon. And then Pharaoh's armies moved north to assist the Assyrians at the Euphrates. In 605, they were both defeated by the Babylonians. That was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, a very important event in biblical chronology. The second kingdom of Egypt, when it was at the extent of its influence, the Euphrates River was its northern boundary, the northern boundary of its influence and subjugation. In 609, the Egyptians fought a great battle at the Euphrates to aid the Assyrians. They lost, and the capital of Assyria was moved down to Carchemish, and when Pharaoh Necho came back through the land of Israel. He deposed the king that the people had set up to replace Josiah and put his own king on the throne, Jehoiakim, and then went back to Egypt. 605 B.C., the great battle of Carchemish. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that this happened in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. 
And these, this verse, these verses that talk about dates are not insignificant. They're not to be skipped over. Actually, this is one of what I call three great bridges in the Scripture. Bridges between the biblical chronology and established historical archaeological chronology. It's these bridges that allow us to date things. They give us a reference point for dating. 605 B.C., the Battle of Carchemish is one of those. It says in Jeremiah 46, verse 2, Against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates, in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So here we have the battle of Carchemish taking place in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. When you flip back to Jeremiah 25 verse 1, you learn that the fourth year of Jehoiakim is also the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar's first year is the same year as this battle at Carchemish is the same as the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And when we look at secular history and we read about the eclipse that took place in, the, in this year of Nebuchadnezzar's father, we have a bridge. We have a bridge. We know this year to be 605 B.C. It's a great bridge. The second bridge is 586 B.C. That bridge is biblical and secular chronology. The fall of Jerusalem, we're told, took place in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. We're told that in the prophet Jeremiah and in 2 Kings. And we can establish the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar from archaeological and secular history as 586 B.C. It's where the biblical and the uh, technologies cross. And then the third one, who knows where the third bridge is? Very important. That helps us date things. And it's very important in terms of dating New Testament events. Anybody know? The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. It's mentioned in Luke chapter 1. That was when Jesus was about 30 years old, it tells us. We know from secular history that Tiberius was made co-emperor with Augustus in A.D. 12. And he was giving equal authority as the emperor in the provinces. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, as far as the Jews would have been concerned, would have been A.D. 26. That means Jesus was born somewhere between 3 and 4 B.C. And that when He was crucified, He was crucified on Passover, A.D. 30. A year in which the Feast of Firstfruits happened to be three days later. Thus fulfilling Passover when He was crucified and fulfilling Firstfruits when He rose up from the dead. So, these are great bridges. The Euphrates River is related to a great chronological bridge that establishes biblical chronology. We can trust biblical chronology. I don't think there's any errors in there whatsoever. It's funny, there are places where people say, well, this must have been a scribal error. You know, one passage says the king was 18 years old. The other passage says he was 8 years old. When he began to reign, this must be a scribal error. Maybe the scribe forgot to put the one. There was a one and an eight, and he forgot to put the one. Foolishness. 
The Hebrews never wrote with numerals. They wrote with words. And when you compare 8 and 18 in the Hebrew text, he left out a lot more than a, a single letter. But when you know what's going on and you know God's at work, you see that these things are not contradictions at all. You see, when God makes somebody a king, that's when they're a king. Not when man makes them a king. David was anointed king long before he sat on the throne in Hebron or Jerusalem. David was anointed king when Saul was still alive. So it's possible to be both 8 and 18 when you sit on the throne depending on who's recognizing your kingship, God or men. There is no contradiction in biblical chronology. It shows itself true. The earth's very young. Lots of science, observable science, proves that and confirms it. The kingdom of Babylon. It was actually, its city was actually, the capital city of Babylon was actually built on the banks of the Euphrates River. In fact, the river flowed through ancient Babylon and that water could sustain the city against long sieges. It was considered to be an impenetrable city, impenetrable walls, and they didn't have to worry about being starved out because they had the Euphrates River running through the city. There were metal grates that had been placed under the water by the ancient Babylonians that prevented anything from coming through except the water so that the walls couldn't be breached. It was an amazing I mean, architectural feat in ancient times. We think we're so smart because we can carry around an iPhone. But if it hadn't been for the foundations built by those who went before, we wouldn't have anything. Technology. This idea that we're smarter than everybody that went before us because we can figure out an iPhone is foolishness. It's the pinnacle of human arrogance. It's not true whatsoever. In 539 B.C., Babylon was besieged by the Persian army. Persians, their influence was increasing in the world. It was the next Gentile kingdom that would arise. Daniel prophesied it, would overthrow Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was dead by this time. Um, uh, King Belshazzar leaked. The city of Babylon were partying. They took the vessels that had been taken from the temple of the Lord and were drinking out of them and praising the gods of silver and gold and the gods of they were just having a big party thinking we're safe. We're perfectly safe. We've got the river. We've got the walls. Let the Persians encamp out there in the desert. We're perfectly safe. In one of the great military feats in human history, King Cyrus' Persians under Darius, his uncle, actually dammed up the Euphrates River north of the city of Babylon. And by digging a canal and damming that river and in a sense rerouting it, the, the river flow through the city decreased to a trickle. And while they partied inside, the Persian army broke through the metal gates and came up through the city in the middle of the night. King Belshazzar was slain and Babylon fell without even a fight. This is described in Daniel chapter 5. God sent a warning to King Belshazzar. Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsen. Your days are numbered and your kingdom is given to the Medes and the Persians. That happened right there 
on the Euphrates. That's a microcosmic picture of sudden destruction coming out of peace and safety. In one night, the mightiest kingdom in the history of the world fell without a fight. And we think we're safe here in America? On the Euphrates River, after Babylon fell and the Persians took over, uh, actually this was back during the time of Babylon, during the king, kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, upriver on the Euphrates was a place called Tel Aviv. It's not Tel Aviv, the commercial capital of Israel today, but it's what Tel Aviv was named after. Who was it that lived at Tel Aviv in the land of Babylon on the Kebar River? the Kabar Canal, just not very far from the Euphrates. Anybody know? The captives. The captives that Ezekiel preached to. Ezekiel's ministry was near the Euphrates River at a place called Tel Aviv. And that's what the Israelis named the city of Tel Aviv after. Because when they named it, it was at a time when they still were captives. They, they still did not possess their land. They've never possessed their land that God has given them since they returned. Back in 1948, they didn't even, they weren't even in, they didn't even have access to Jerusalem. So they, they built this city, Tel Aviv, with a place in mind where they were in captivity during the time of the Babylonian captivity. That was there near the Euphrates River. As far as the Persian Empire was concerned, the Euphrates was the ark of its subjugation, its empire followed that ark and then dropped down its influence and subjugation, dropped down into Palestine and over into Egypt as well. The returning captives who were given provision and permission by King Cyrus to come back to the land to rebuild the temple would have followed that ark of the Euphrates River to come back into the land. The Greek empire rose up quickly just as Daniel prophesied, overthrew the Persians. It crossed the Euphrates River to invade Mesopotamia in the summer of 331 B.C. And here we have another amazing uh, military feat. Alexander the Great's general constructed a pontoon bridge across the Euphrates. And some of the Persians tried to hold the opposite bank but weren't able to do so. And the commander of the Persians who basically was supposed to prevent Alexander from crossing and failed to do so, he was also the same guy later at the great battle of Arbela that literally threw away certain Persian victory and allowed the Greeks to, 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 to defeat King Darius and basically Persian, the Persian Empire came to an end. And then this general who threw the battle away ended up being appointed by Alexander to be the governor of Babylon. So, you know, in, in a way it can be said that the, uh, the fall of the Persian Empire happened at the Euphrates and it resulted in the great battle of Arbela where a heavily outnumbered Greek army uh, defeated the Persians Stonewall Jackson style. Amazing military battle. So the Euphrates was basically a site where two great world empires came to an end. The Babylonians and what the Persians did to the Babylonians was done back to them some years later. You know, these men had to build bridges to cross the Euphrates, to invade, to move armies. But in the days of this sixth 
vile judgment, there won't need to be a bridge because God's going to dry it up. There won't be a barrier anymore. You know, bridges are okay. They can work. Armies have built pontoon bridges for centuries to move armies. But they're not conducive for invasion. And they expose an army. They make it vulnerable. There have been lots of armies defeated trying to cross bridges by a vastly inferior force. When Bethany and I kind of toured around last weekend, we went to the Antietam battlefield of Sharpsburg. It's a great Civil War battle. September 17, 1862, it's known as the single bloodiest day in American history. 22,000 men. 22,000 casualties in one day. It was a brutal battle that began at sunup. Started in a cornfield and near a Dunker church. It progressed into an old roadbed and it culminated with men trying to cross a narrow bridge over Antietam Creek. And for hours, for hours, a skeleton Confederate force on a cliff just picked off a large Union army across that bridge. And one of the reasons why that day was so bloody is because an army was trying to field itself across a bridge and set itself up to be exposed. Eventually, numbers won the day there at the end and the Confederates were driven back. And then in a major... Uh, uh, in, in a great example of being in the right place at the right time, another, another Confederate force showed up on the field at the right minute and pushed the Union back across the, the river. It was a, just an I- incredible uh, campaign there that day. Neither side left the field. It was a draw. Bloody, bloody. But a bridge crossing played a very important part. And it actually affected the outcome. It won't be like that in the last day. It won't be having to build bridges to cross the Euphrates. God's going to dry it up. God's going to dry it up and He's going to bring the armies across and nobody can stop them. Rome. The Euphrates was important as far as the Romans were concerned. It was the eastern border of the Roman Empire. The extent of Romanization. In AD 116, Emperor Trajan did actually cross the Euphrates River and he fought the, Parthi- the Parthenians, but he just set up a puppet king. They were never Roman provinces out there. It was the eastern border of the Roman Empire, basically. In the days of John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, the so-called kings of the east were completely insignificant and unknown to him in that day. Completely insignificant and unknown. That was considered the wilderness. Nobody knew what went on over there. Euphrates was the extent of Romanization. So it makes this prophecy all the more fascinating that there would be talk of a river that at that time was the extent of Roman subjugation drying up so that the way of the kings of the east could be prepared. There wasn't anything significant or even known hardly in John's day about kings of the east. Perhaps most importantly where the Euphrates, the great Euphrates River is concerned is it's not only significant today, it's not only significant in the beginning of creation or in the history of these great Gentile kingdom, but it is the northeast boundary of the land that God promised Abraham. In fact, this phrase, great river Euphrates, 
It appears three times in the Old Testament. The same phrase we see here in Revelation 16. Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. Very important prophecy. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Land was always a part of it. God promised him a land. I have given this land. What land? From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. God promised Abram's descendants a land from the river Euphrates down to the river of Egypt. When you go over to Deuteronomy, this same thing is spoken to the children of Israel as they prepare to get into the land and conquer it. Deuteronomy 1, 7 and 8. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and unto all the places nigh thereunto, in the plain and the hills and in the vale and in the south and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites and unto Lebanon and unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give unto them and their seed after them. So God told them to go in and take it from the river Euphrates. Now they never did. Never did what God told them to do. But that was the border. Joshua. Joshua 1.4 reiterates this as well. From the wilderness and this Lebanon even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. The river Euphrates was given to Israel as their border. The Bible tells us in Joshua 24 that Abraham came from the other side of the Euphrates. When it says he came from Ur of the Chaldees, most historians or quote-unquote biblical scholars would say that refers to the great city that was located down near the mouth of, I mean, near the uh, confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates. But Joshua says he came from the other side of the flood. So that Ur of the Chaldees was probably in those Armenian mountains. He probably came down out of those mountains. The ancient land of the Hittites. That's where Abraham came from, and he crossed the Euphrates to obey God. The Bible tells us that King David had garrisons up in Damascus and he received voluntary tribute from a place called Hamath which was, on the, which was just north of the Orontes River which is in northern Lebanon. So David had garrisons and received tribute as far north as the Orontes which is about 100 miles from the Euphrates. So David's influence and extent moved up toward that border in his day. He received tribute from a king toy uh, who was from Hamath. We learn some interesting things about the Euphrates in 1 Kings chapter 4 regarding Solomon. First Kings chapter 4, 21 through 25. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, that's a reference to the Euphrates, unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. 
And then it talks about the provisions that were given to him and the various tributes. And then in verse 24 it says, For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsha even to Aza, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So Solomon brought under subjugation everything on this side of the river up to the Euphrates. The word Tipsha there, Tipsha was located on the, the west bank of the Euphrates. So Solomon exerted economic control and created vassal states that actually extended up to this border. That was the greatest extent of Israel's uh, possession of the land God gave to Abraham in history. That's as far north as it ever went. And in Solomon's day, it was a vassal state. It was economic control. But when you look at the next verse, verse 25, it says that he had control from the Euphrates down to the border of Egypt. Verse 25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So while he had economic control of a great part of this land God had given to Abraham, it wasn't Israel. Israel was dwelling safely from Dan to Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba is basically uh, what was in the mind of the British and the UN when they get established the British mandate and, when it, and it played into the formation of the modern state of Israel. They drew it up based upon the biblical definition of Dan, which Dan is, tell Dan is the northern border of Israel today and Beersheba. Now the Israelis have gone and possessed the Negev Desert and actually have a port on the Gulf of Aqaba. But Dan to Beersheba was where Israel was living in the times of Solomon. That's where they were possessing. So even though there was economic control in vassal states and freedom to travel, it wasn't possession that God promised to Abraham. When you look at 1 Kings 8, here we talk about Solomon having economic control all the way up to the banks of the Euphrates. In, in, in 1 Kings 8, he declares a great feast to celebrate the dedication of the temple. And it tells us at the end of chapter 8 that at that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath river of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and seven days even 14 days so when he had this festival it wasn't including that area all the way up to the, to the uh, Euphrates it was from the entering of Hamath which was about a hundred miles south of the Euphrates to the river of Egypt this river of Egypt mentioned here is not the same river of Egypt that was promised to Abraham. This river of Egypt spoken of here in 1 Kings 8 is what we read earlier in chapter 4 is the border of Egypt. It's a small river called the Wadi Al-Arish. And the Hebrew word used here um, is Nahal. It's a stream. It's a brook that's sometimes dry. But when you go to Genesis 15 and God said your land will be from the river of Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the Hebrew word is not Nahal, it's Nahar. A large river that floods annually. So what God promised Israel wasn't the river of Egypt mentioned here. In Solomon's day, it went down, his, his influence went down to the border of Egypt. The border of Egypt is a river. 
It's basically just a few miles from the southern crossing between Egypt and Gaza, the Gaza Strip today, the Wadi Al-Arish. But what God promised Abraham was something far bigger. God's promise to Abraham includes the place where Noah's Ark landed. It includes parts of eastern Turkey, most of Syria and Iraq, all of it south of the Euphrates River. It includes all of Jordan. It includes the entire Sinai Peninsula. It includes Egypt's fertile areas on the east bank of the Nile. It includes the land of Goshen where Israel became a nation and was preserved during the time of the Exodus. And it also includes the area that she wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in northern Arabia. That's the land allotment that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Israel has never possessed it. Solomon reigned over the greatest extent of this territory. From the, uh, from the river Euphrates, he had influence down to the border of Egypt, but Israel has never possessed the Euphrates to the Nile like they have possessed Dan to Beersheba. In 1967, the Israeli army captured the Sinai Peninsula. In 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, the IDF got within 30 miles of the city of Damascus in Syria. In fact, there's a tank museum outside of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv where you can go see some interesting exhibit, exhibits from some of these wars and there's captured Jordanian and Israeli and Syrian, or Egyptian and Syrian tanks. And there's actually the mile marker on the road to Damascus that the IDF took as a souvenir from the 73 war and it shows that Damascus was only 46 kilometers away. In 73, the Israelis also got within 60 miles of Cairo. They got close to that river of Egypt, the Nile. They were, on, they were getting close to Damascus, but never to what God has given them. From 1967 to 1982, for 15 years, Israel actually occupied the Sinai Peninsula. And I've heard testimonies of people that lived in Israel during that day, and they spoke about how some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. There were beautiful beach resorts. It was an incredible place to go hiking and camping. It was completely safe. And it was truly tragic when the Israelis were convinced to give the Sinai back to Egypt to make peace. And now it's one of the most dangerous places in the world. You can't travel to the traditional side of Mount Sinai that the Catholics say that's it. I don't believe that's fine. I was. I don't believe that's where Israel wandered in the desert. I won't get into that. But you can't travel there without an armed escort now because there's so much terrorism and it's just one of the most dangerous places in all the world. It's really tragic. But Israel possessed it for a time and it was an incredible place to go. Israel's been close, but never as God promised. Not yet. And the Euphrates River is a big part of that. One day that'll be the border of Israel. Everything south, all the way to the Nile. That's what God promised. Doesn't matter what the UN says. Doesn't matter what some Arab nations say. Doesn't matter. God does what He says He's going to do. And we believe that. In the prophet Jeremiah, the Euphrates is very significant. Turn to chapter 13. 
of Jeremiah. Here God tells the prophet, I'll just read a few verses. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle. Go get you a pair of underwear. Put it on thy loins. Don't wash it. Brand new pair. Put on a new pair of underwear. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. The word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, Take the girdle, got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now, I think that verse 5 there is pretty, pretty convicting. God told the prophet to do something that seemed kind of strange. And the prophet said, I went and I did what God commanded me to do. Why can't we be like that? Things God tells us to do in His Word aren't even strange like this. Plain sense stuff. Why can't we be like the prophet? So I went and did what God told me to do. It's kind of convicting. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence, which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it, and behold, the girdle was marred, and it was profitable for nothing. So God told the prophet to wear a pair of underwear, brand new underwear, and then to go up to the Euphrates River and bury it in a hole in the rock. Now, friends, that was a journey of about three to 400 miles, depending on which route Jeremiah took. And it wasn't exactly safe in those days. Those were the days when all that mess was going on up at Carchemish and Egypt and Assyria were united against the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar's army and all this pressure. And it was from that way that Nebuchadnezzar would come down and, and sack Jerusalem and destroy it. I mean, it wasn't exactly safe. But God told him to go all the way up to the Euphrates and bury that underwear. And he did it. Then he came back. And then many days later, he was told to go get it. So he made two 800-mile round trips to make a point involving the Euphrates River. After many days, the underwear was retrieved. And God told the prophet that as underwear or a girdle cleaves to a man, Israel and Judah cleaves to my heart. They're my people. My covenant people. But, like the underwear you pulled out of the ground that sat there for many days... These people that are my covenant people have become marred, are no better than that underwear, and I'm going to judge them. God says in verse 13, He's going to judge them as if they're drunk. He's going to judge them with spiritual drunkenness. Stumbling around, they don't even know what's good for them anymore. I think we can see that here in America today. People in this country have been judged with this drunkenness, confusion of face, blindness. He's going to judge them with invasion and captivity. And He's going to do to them what He said through the prophet Nahum that He would do to Nineveh. He's going to pull their skirts up over their faces and show their shame to the nations. As if they don't even have any underwear on. That's what He's going to do. And what's amazing is while this event is taking place and while this prophecy is being 
declared as a warning to Israel, the same things that Nahum prophesied 150 years earlier are coming to pass with Nineveh. Right before the people's eyes in the days of Jeremiah. God said, I'm, on, I'm against you. I'm going to pull your skirt up over your face and I'm going to show your shame to the nations. They're seeing the fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy when this is going on with Jeremiah. Their own scriptures, they're seeing it fulfilled. But they don't even care. They don't even change their ways. They're just like we are today. We're seeing the scriptures fulfilled. But it doesn't make any difference. Men don't change. They don't change. And so God makes a point. He sends the prophet to what should be the northern border of a people had they followed the Lord. And He makes a point with a dirty pair of underwear that they were useless and marred by their pride and He was going to judge them. The prophet was told to go up where Babylon was approaching, where the battle of Carchemish would take place to what was supposed to be Israel's border to make a point. I was reminded of a time, I was trying to envision this incident in my mind, and there was a time when I was in Joshua Tree National Park. Joshua Tree National Park is in Southern California. It's an amazing place. It's barren. A lot of rocks. A lot of Joshua trees. A lot of desert. It's one of the best rock climbing places in the world. You just don't want to be there in the summertime because the rocks are too hard or too hot to touch. But it's an incredible place to be in the winter. It's very remote. And there's some secret things in Joshua Tree that a lot of people don't know about. If you know a spot to park, you can walk about a mile and a half across the desert down to these rocks where a man lived years ago. He was squatting on that property. And when the government you know, began to build the National Monument in the National Park, he was forcibly removed, but he wrote all these messages, long messages, against the American government on the rocks. I mean, this was a long time ago. And uh, there's messages are down there. They're very long in detail. It's very interesting. The old home place down there, it's just completely ransacked. And it's, it's an old, uh, not a home place, but it used to be, you could see like a corral, the, the remains of a, a horse corral and some other things. Somebody used to live there. And it's kind of fun to go down there and, and look for those messages, but I couldn't tell you where it is today. I've tried to go back some years later and I can't remember. But I hiked out there one day and I'm out in the desert and all of a sudden uh, I've got to, I, I feel the need to find a bathroom, but there is no bathroom. And I don't have any toilet paper and I'm out in the middle of the desert. So uh, I had to uh, take care of my business and I decided that in lieu of toilet paper, I would just use my underwear. And I would stick the underwear there in the cleft of the rock and leave it. I'd just leave it out there. And uh, so I used my underwear as toilet paper. I left it out there in the desert, stuck it there in a rock and left it. Well, it was probably a month or two later I was back down there. And I thought, you know, I want to see... I just, I'm curious. I'm curious about two things. I'm curious about the underwear and I'm curious about uh, what was left there on the ground. Just curious. What happens, you know? So I hiked back out there. What was left on the ground was powder. It's powder. Dry powder. It's a pile of powder. 
the underwear was not where I'd left it. I found it, I found it like, I don't know, maybe 100, 100 feet out in the desert. And it was bleach white like it had been through a, a washing machine. But it was completely marred and broken down. It looked like animals had gotten into it. But it, was, it wasn't dirty per se, but it was marred just from sitting out there in the desert. So, I mean, I kind of experienced this in my own life and it, it, it allowed me to visualize what's happening here with Jeremiah. So I'm sure you're, you feel more educated now that you know that. <laughs> but if you go, um, and just be patient with me, I'm going to try to end on a good note here. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 46... You know, you've got the linen girdle there. He's sent up to the what's supposed to be the northern border of Israel. You go to chapter 46. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles. So from 46 to chapter 51, you see various prophecies against Gentile nations that were adverse to Israel in that day. It begins with Egypt. And references made in verse 2 to what God did to Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish. So this is after 605 B.C. The first captives, Daniel and three Hebrew children were taken captive following the battle of Carchemish in 605. Ezekiel was taken captive uh, when Jehoiakim was, went to Babylon in um, 597 B.C. And then 586 B.C., many of the captives were taken at the destruction of the temple. So this is some after Carchemish. References made here to that happening in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And then there's a prophecy leveled against Egypt. And then you continue through the chapters, Moab, Ammon, and then it culminates with a prophecy against Babylon. Babylon who would cross the Euphrates to come into Israel. Something that Habakkuk or Habakkuk in Hebrew didn't understand. He didn't understand why God would use the wicked Babylonians to judge His covenant people. He didn't understand that. And he questioned God. And the prophecy there answers those questions. But these, all of these prophecies against the Gentile nations here in Jeremiah culminating with what God would do to Babylon when all it's said and done, even though He would use them to judge Israel, He would punish them for their sins. All of these things are written down. God has Jeremiah write them down in a book. And then it tells us at the end of chapter 51 that uh, this book was sent with one of the princes named Sariah to Babylon. This was in the fourth year of Zedekiah when Zedekiah actually made a trip. He was the king set up by Nebuchadnezzar um, after he came back and took captives the second time and, and took Jehoiachin captive. He set up Zedekiah. And Zedekiah went to Babylon and you know, he later was told, you know, submit yourself to Babylon and the city will be saved. But he wouldn't do it and the city was destroyed, whatever, whatever. But he made a trip uh, uh, to Babylon in his fourth year and this prince Sariah was told to take this book of prophecies against the Gentiles and he was to take it to Babylon this was about 12 years after um, Carchemish and it was about the same year that Ezekiel started prophesying 
He is to go to Babylon and he is to read these prophecies aloud in the streets of that city. And then he's to bind them with a stone. And then he's to throw the book into the river Euphrates. And it was to sink to the bottom. And this would be a witness of what God would make clear to Nebuchadnezzar. What he made, would make clear to Belshazzar. What he, will make, what he has and will make clear to all man-made kings. Culminating with those that come across that river to Armageddon. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and He giveth, gives those kingdoms to whoever He wants. The prince was to read it, throw it in the river as a testimony that God rules in these kingdoms. You know, these kingdoms are switching hands. Assyria, Egypt, they're falling. Babylon's coming to power, but God rules in all this. And this city that's conquering the world right now will be punished by God. And then that book of prophecy against the Gentile nations is thrown into the Euphrates River. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever He wills. And when He's ready to give it to Messiah, that He will do. No one can stop it. So the river Euphrates is significant in the Old Testament. God makes a point using that river concerning some great truths. It's the northern boundary of what He promised to the children of Abraham. It's been a crossing point of empires. It was the cradle of civilization. And it's endured since the beginning of time. That river endured since the beginning of time. But one day it's going to dry up. Why is it going to dry up? That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the water thereof was dried up. Not rerouted, not slowed down, but dried up. This opens a path for invasion. Opens a path for invasion. But what else? why else do you think? What else does it do? I believe this judgment won't only make a way for the kings of the east, but it's going to expose a couple of things. One last testimony to the world. One last exposure to the world. Number one, Jeremiah's book of judgment's down there. It's down there. Judgment against the Gentiles. God didn't have him throw it in there just to get rid of it. It's down there. Just like I believe the altar of stones that was built, by, built up by Joshua and the children of Israel as they crossed the Jordan, it's down there. But that book of judgment against the Gentile nations is down there. And when that river dries up and those Gentile kings cross, there's a great witness bound with a stone that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And what you're doing, you're doing because God's bringing you. Secondly, the ultimate source of the Euphrates is the permanent ice cap on top of Mount Ararat. For the river to dry up, the source has got to dry up. And when that ice cap melts and that river dries up in the last days, I believe Noah's Ark will be exposed. A final convincing testimony to the world of a worldwide flood, the folly of man-centered evolution, and the certainty of a day of reckoning. When these armies cross this dried up river, there's the testimony of ancient prophecy against them. And there's the te te testimony of another time when God destroyed the world and when a day of reckoning came.
came. Payday someday. This will be in sight as these nations are gathered. It's payday. Why? Why? Just for a battle? No. Why will this river dry up? Why will these testimonies be here? Because ultimately, all of these things are done because as God made it clear to Habakkuk the prophet, when he questioned, God, why would you use these wicked Babylon? Why would you judge your covenant people? And God told the prophet a couple of things. And I'll end with this. With or without Donald Trump, with or without a border wall, with or without DACA, Russian collusion, war with North Korea, the 25th Amendment, with or without the Democrats, with or without any of these things, be assured of this. It says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The river will be dried up, but the earth will be filled. At Armageddon, the world system is destroyed. And from that point forward, this earth is filled with God's knowledge and His glory. Then you go to verse 20. When all of this stuff is happening that the prophet questions, when all of the things are happening that we see, be reminded that the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. The great river Euphrates. Next week, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the kings of the east. When we see things in Scripture prophesied, there's always types and anti-types throughout history. There's shadow fulfillments. Just like Nazi Germany was a type of antichrist. He wasn't antichrist. He was a type. Everything that God prophesies for the last days is foreshadowed in history. Sometimes that foreshadowing is recorded in the Scripture. The coming of the kings of the East has been foreshadowed in history. It's very interesting too. And it's related to probably one of the greatest missed opportunities of the church in all of church history. Where the church failed. And as a result, the gospel didn't go where it could have gone. There's strange legends that come out of Mongolia and out of uh, Tibet about an army that will one day come. Looks a whole lot what's described there in Revelation 9. Those fallen angels. But, uh, and there's also a lesson about biblical chronology when we talk about the kings of the East. You know, People look at the Bible and they look at, okay, where did Cain get his sister? How could, how could Cain have built a city? There wouldn't have been enough people around. Or how did the, the earth get full of people in the 1600 and whatever years between, 1656 years between creation and the flood? Or how in the world did people repopulate the earth so quick after Noah? And how did, uh, you know, uh, Babel, you know, how nations of people? And how did the people, you know, that couldn't happen. That's all a fairy tale. It's all a fairy tale. There's an interesting lesson from a type of the kings of the East that shows in modern time, in relatively modern times when you're talking about the history of the world that these things aren't far off at all. They're not far off at all. So there's an interesting story that's silenced by the life of someone important in human history. 
with regard to those who mock biblical chronology. But I won't get into that now, and uh, that'll leave us some interesting uh, things to talk about next week. Does anybody have any questions? I know this was kind of more like a seminary class today than, than a, a message, but I think these things are interesting and they shed light on what's happening. God, the book of Revelation is not just an assimilation of random prophecies. It's built upon what's already been prophesied. It's nothing new. And it agrees with what we see in the Old Testament. There's reasons beyond. God doesn't just pick a random river. He's making a point with everything He does. When God judges, He makes a point. He shows the gods of men to be nothing, and He shows men to be nothing, and He shows His promises to be true. So, the great river Euphrates, next week the kings of the east will be the phrase we look upon, and then we'll uh, get into uh, unclean spirits and frogs and Armageddon or Armageddon. We'll, we'll see what happens. I still hope that when we get into 17 and 18, we can cover an entire chapter perhaps in one Sunday. I've already kept my promise though. Went back to chapter 15. But we're getting closer to the good things. The good things. The promises. So hopefully it won't take five years to get there. Let's close with prayer and uh, we'll have a meal together. Dear Lord, we thank You for this day. Thank You for this Word, Father. I don't profess to know every detail or to understand it. I know that history is very intricate and detailed, but it's all transpired under Your divine hand of providence. and Everything happens for a reason. There is no shadow of turning with You. You fulfill Your promises. Judgment's coming. Thank You for the good things we see in this country. We pray for our President, Lord, that You would check his pride that You would use Him to stand for righteousness and that He would not go the way of Asa and uh, ultimately fail. Um, I pray, Lord, that uh, You'd have mercy upon us as a nation, keep the door open a little longer. But we know what's been written. We rejoice and we look for that blessed hope knowing that that day should not overtake us as a thief. And Lord, we ask that uh, You would help us to be mindful, to watch and be sober. Father, bless the food we're going to eat. Bless our fellowship. Thank you that we can still gather together in freedom. And we look for that day for you to return and take us home and to bring these things to pass that are written so that we can rule and reign with you over this earth, pressing toward a day when you, Lord God, will create a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. No crying, no pain, no suffering, no disease, no aging, no sin. Glorious things. All these things we pray in the name of the Messiah. The King of Israel, who's coming again. Jesus. Amen.